Today's pod is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk with Matt Hasselbeck on playing for Andy Reid uh, when he was drafted out of BC and in that quarterback room with Brett Favre and Peterson. I mean, just unbelievable stories out of him. And we got a little Jeff Passon for a little hot stove and uh, what has not been that hot. Just I like talking that labor stuff about baseball and what the new proposal looks like in an incredible story, both sad and redemption. Uh, a feature that he has up on ESPN.com that has a little documentary piece of it as well. So we'll do that and some life advice. That's the plan. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos and more so download the app today and bet with FanDuel official partner of the NBA the ringer is committed to responsible gaming so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details must be 21 and older 18 plus in DC and present in select states gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com this episode is brought to you by Buy. It's Wonder Water. So I was wondering what made Buy so great. And it's actually pretty simple. Buy has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. And the flavors are delicious. For me, it has to be Buy Zambia Bing Cherry. So for flavorful hydration, choose Buy. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Buy and discover all of the exotic bold flavors at drinkbuy.com. Got a little NBA game that I was thinking of last night when I was watching the Nets and Clippers because we're all watching the Nets because we're trying to figure out how this is going to look. And offensively, it was stupid. The shot making from Durant, Harden, and then Kyrie in particular, just another reminder of what they're capable of. But we've also seen what they're capable of in a negative way defensively. The numbers in the fourth quarter off the charts on the offense and historically bad defensively. But they were really good, I thought, in moments defensively with just effort alone and it clogged the Clippers up and you know, look the Nets got a nice win against another really good team in the Clippers but then Paul George old 30-13 checked in afterwards and he said you know refs you know I gotta take more free throws I'm paraphrasing here a little bit and just let me be like man that's not like Paul George to say something like that I'm like oh wait no it's exactly what Paul George does but Paul George you may not have known this is having kind of a career year not in total points scored but the assists are up in a way they've never been before his playmaking has been incredible and he's shooting from three he's at 45 percent another career year so whenever i hear anybody say like oh well paul george are you paying attention to what he's doing this year I'm like of course i am watch a lot of hoops over here at the casa but none of it matters because this is the exercise which NBA players or which NBA teams? Because as I was thinking about all the Paul George stuff, none of it's going to matter until we see it actually happen in the playoffs, especially coming off of last year's collapse and other bad Paul George playoff games. And it's the same thing for the Milwaukee Bucks. Milwaukee Bucks are going to have a great record again. They're a better team this year with Drew Holiday. Their offense is even better this year than it was last year. But there are moments we see Giannis doesn't look entirely comfortable because they've changed some of their concepts. And, you know, no one cares. No one cares about what the Bucks look like other than Bucks fans, because of what happened in the playoffs last year with them. So it's almost the same deal. Paul George, doesn't matter until we see it in the playoffs. And the Milwaukee Bucks, who I actually think have fallen into this category of being really disappointing the last two years, but I don't think that's fair. They lost in six games to the Toronto Raptors two years ago. Yes, they had a 2-0 lead, and they blew the series, but that was the Eastern Conference Finals. It wasn't like this disaster that we saw from them in the second round against the Miami Heat. So what other players remind us of NBA teams? 
Norman Powell, the Toronto Raptors. You're like, wait, Rosillo, Norman Powell? Yes, Norman Powell. Do you know about this guy? 15, 16 a game the last couple of years. He's about 40% from three the last three years. He makes all of his free throws. Not a ton of rebounds and assists. But every time I watch Norman Powell, I'm like, you know what? He's pretty good. And I don't feel like anybody ever talks about him. And he's doing this usually always off the bench. And he always seems to be mad about stuff. But I like it. Because you know who else is mad? Pacers fans who feel like they've never gotten enough respect. Do you realize the Pacers, through all of these moving pieces, are only a game out of the number two seed in the Eastern Conference? They're doing this without Oladipo, who they traded for Carol Levert, who hasn't played, and TJ Warren's been hurt all the time. Every year we look at the Pacers and go, eh, whatever. They're probably not going to hold up that seeding. Last year, oh, the Sixers are going to catch him. Didn't happen. I'm not telling you I'm picking the Pacers to get out of the East. I'm not picking Norman Powell to make an all-star team. All I'm telling you is the Norman Powell Pacer fans have been right more often than they've been wrong. D'Angelo Russell, what's his profile? Well, made an all-star team, scored 20 a game for three different franchises, basically a max contract. All these people seem to want him. Scoring nights where it's really impressive. Some of the playmaking, and you're like, man, this is great. Look how talented he is. What's our record again? Oh, we have the worst record in the West. What's going on? Well, the problem is, is that it looks good and some of the stuff looks good, but the real results, the plus minus, Russell's arguably the worst plus minus of anybody who plays real minutes, especially somebody that's supposed to be a star. And that's kind of why they have that bad record. It reminds me of the Wizards because the Wizards on paper with that backcourt, Beal, 35 a game, Westbrook, a previous All-NBA just last season, which still seems a little weird. And you're like, all right, they can't be that bad, are they? Yeah, they're just as bad. Trey Young and the Houston Rockets. No, see, I, you guys thought I was going to do that one. Trey's been better. Atlanta's been much better. And you know what? Houston's actually, as of the taping of this, a playoff team. Have you been paying attention to what the Rocks has been doing, putting together this roster on the fly? I doubt you have, but they're actually your eight seed today. Let's finish with everyone's favorite late-night rookie. That's Tyrese Halliburton of the Sacramento Kings. Now, Halliburton goes a little bit later uh, than maybe we thought he would, and now it's looking like a huge mistake. But when you come into a situation where there's a very dominant, ball-dominant, score-first point guard in De'Aaron Fox, that's not always easy, especially as a rookie. And the great thing about Halliburton is he can do all this stuff. He can play with the ball when Fox is out. He can play off the ball when they close games together. He hits open shots. He spreads the floor. He can initiate the offense. And that stuff's actually way more impressive than a rookie who's just handed the keys to a franchise and say, hey, look, take 20 shots. And maybe it's like the second or third year in, but you get the point. But it wasn't always an easy fit, but it's worked out. And it's like real. It feels real. And the Memphis Grizzlies feel real. They're the sixth seed. And this hasn't been easy. The toughest schedule so far. John Morant's missed half their games. They had five games postponed. Jaron Jackson hasn't played any games for him whatsoever. But every time I watch the Grizzlies, I go, you know what? I don't think this is going to be this fluctuating thing all the time. Now, I'm not picking the Memphis Grizzlies to win the West. But what I'm telling you is that it's real and it's better and it's been challenging. But don't be surprised if Halliburton ends up winning Rookie of the Year. All right, let's talk with Matt Hasselbeck of ESPN. Matt Hasselbeck joins us. Super Bowl quarterback. We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, Super Bowl winning. Ouch. I know. I know. Boston right off the top rope. Like, dude, this is Matt. You know, he was there. but uh, He was in uh, the Super Bowl. Uh, I could have won a Super Bowl. Uh, almost won a Super Bowl, but did not. Yeah, I don't know why I did that. I don't know. Why. I didn't mean to do it that way. Um, but, you know, we're already off to that kind yeah. of start. It follows so, you. It's so funny. You win a Super Bowl, it changes everything. You know, it's just, it's, I want to say it's funny. These are, these are tears though. They're happy tears. <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> okay, we're gonna do some stories on that stuff. You seem to be fired up today, so that's that's great. That that well, makes I'm me feel good. Coast, you're on the West Coast, so I've I've been outside shoveling snow for two hours already. I see your golf clubs in the background of your your picture there. So we're living different lives right now. Uh, so that that's why maybe I'm up and you're yawning. No, I'm not. Yeah, I see all the snow. I mean, you got a little Robert Frost going behind you there right now. So I don't I don't know what the hell. Like that's like overwhelming. Uh, yeah, we had two inches per hour, uh, for the last two days. So we got a lot of problems here. We lost power a couple of times. I am ready to get to Tampa though. I am ready to go to the Super Bowl. I don't care if it's raining as long as I'm not shoveling, I'm ready to go. So you guys are going to be doing countdown from there live. We're doing uh they call it postseason NFL countdown to me. I call it Sunday NFL countdown. I don't know why they changed the name, but, uh, it's a four hour show, 10 AM to 2 PM Eastern time. And, um, we kind of split the show. So it's the kind of the crew of Sunday, uh, countdown and then Monday countdown. Most of the Monday people are at the stadium an empty stadium pregame calm before the storm. And then the Sunday crew, which I like to call the kids table. Uh, if you've ever been to a wedding, there's like, you know, the important people. And then there's the kids table. I contend the kids table is a little more fun, but anyway, uh, we're going to be out by the beach. So it'll be Samantha Ponder, Randy Moss, Rex Ryan, Teddy Bruschi, and myself, which is our normal Sunday crew. And we've got a lot of, I mean, I've got some cool things coming for this show. So I'm excited for our game day to get here so I can kind of break down some of the stuff that people will see in the Super Bowl. Okay, before we get to too much of the breakdown stuff, though, give me your, your best story going into this one. Like my best storyline. Well, I'll, I'll give you a storyline that no one's going to talk about, but they should talk about. Okay. It is absolutely hilarious. So one of my favorite players in this game is Anthony Sherman, the fullback for the Chiefs. Okay. He's kind of a do-it-all, everything guy. At the Pro Bowl a few years ago, I asked Patrick Mahomes, I said, okay, besides Alex Smith, what veteran player meant the most to you, you know, in Kansas City? He's like, oh, Sherm, Anthony Sherman. Like he, he's my role model. He's my guy, you know? So it was like a huge compliment. So Anthony Sherman, the fullback, I see on social media, all these people are tweeting, Anthony Sherman is donating tick, you know, donating his own personal truck. You can buy raffle tickets to fight human trafficking. I thought, wow, it's amazing. Like I know Anthony Sherman. I know how much he loves his truck. There's a picture of his truck. It's like a really nice truck. It's like custom, all this stuff. Oh my God, that's great. Well, I find out yesterday he didn't donate his truck. Okay. <laughs> this was a prank, a locker room prank that Adam LaRoche, the baseball player, got involved with with Dustin Colquitt, the punter, and Matt Light, the Patriot. Kind of sorta. And they were like, yo, let's break into his phone. Let's get his passcode. Let's break into his Twitter and let's put a tweet out there saying, hey, I'm donating my truck right as he goes to practice. So Anthony Sherman, the fullback, has no idea about this. He's in the training room. The trainers are saying like, oh, hey, it's really great what you're doing with your truck, human trafficking. Good for you. He's like, well, I mean, I support, you know, fighting human trafficking. Like, okay. You know, didn't know out of practice. Coaches are like, hey, man, that's amazing what you're doing about your truck. We know how much you love your truck. He's like, what are you talking about? He gets back into the locker room. He gets on his phone. He's locked out of his phone. They changed the passcode. He can't delete the tweet. This goes on. All these people are retweeting it. Pat McAfee, Travis Kelsey's quote tweeting it like, hey, what an unselfish guy Anthony Sherman is. I'll give an autographed jersey of mine for everyone that gives $2,500 or more to this, you know, uh, raffle. So anyway, long story short, Anthony Sherman now has two choices. He can either get on Twitter when he gets back into his phone and be like, uh, hey, that was a prank. <laughs> sorry, it's my truck. Or like, I, I mean, this is a great cause. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and give away my prized possession, my truck. So that all just went down yesterday. And 
I mean, it's just hilarious. I hope he scores a touchdown. I hope Nance and Romo tell the story. Um, it's really, really a great story. Great prank. I mean, you know, locker room pranks are amazing, but to do it during the Super Bowl, how relaxed is your locker room? And then I guess there's footage. I talked to the equipment guy for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, who's been there forever. And I guess there's footage of when he comes into the locker room and like finally gets onto his phone and finally sees what's happening. They had like hidden cameras and stuff. So anyway, that that's my favorite storyline so far, the Super Bowl. That's nasty though. That's like straight <laughs> up nat because now you have to do something or well, the rest no, of the so, guys have to kick in. Cause now you know how well, everything is now. Like people are listening to this right now, being like, what is human trafficking a joke? And you're like, all right, let's let's get to the end right. first. Very serious. Yeah. Very serious. And so, like, there's a lot of great stuff that's come out of this. It's a it's kind of funny. Anthony Sherman played at UConn. Uh, the tailback at the time was Donald Brown, who rushed for over 2,000 yards um, in college. You know, he's actually that's actually his career. He works for an organization called uh, IJM, International Justice Mission, and he's like dedicating his life to fighting human trafficking. Um, we've been involved with Donald Brown and IJM for a long time. So there's a lot of people that you know. Ironically, this prank was played on Anthony Sherman, but I think it's actually getting more attention on a very serious issue that because of it was a prank, other, instead of uh, it just being like a normal, you know, charitable raffle or something like that. But I will say part of the fun part of this story is that this was actually payback because once upon a time, uh, Anthony Sherman put 12,000 Oreos on the inside of Adam LaRoche's truck as a prank, which is kind of ridiculous but uh so this was actually the payback to that prank yeah that that's probably not good for the interior who uh who was the best vet for you when uh when you came into the league you know my rookie year the quarterback room was so Andy Reid was actually my quarterback's coach in Green Bay the starting quarterback was Brett Favre the backup quarterback was Doug Peterson and then our third guy was Rick Meyer and then it was me on the practice squad who basically was allowed to be in the room while Andy Reid and Mike Holmgren were coaching Brett Favre and so I wasn't really allowed to ask Brett a lot of questions I wasn't really supposed to talk in those meetings so when the meeting was over I would have a list of notes of things that they said in the meeting that I didn't understand what they were saying. And so when the meeting was over from the walk in Green Bay, quarterbacks met upstairs, locker room was downstairs. From the walk, from the second floor to the first floor, I would try to get my questions in to Doug Peterson or Rick Meyer. So if I had to pick one, I would say Doug Peterson was probably the guy that taught me the most X's and O's that answered the questions that I wasn't allowed to ask. Um, and so like, how lucky was I? Like they were paying me. I mean, I was on the practice squad. I made $62,000 that rookie year. I felt like I should have been paying them $62,000. I mean, it felt like Harvard Business School for a young quarterback for me just being allowed to be in those meetings. What was the first moment where you went, okay, you know, you're expecting it to be harder. You're expecting it to be more complicated. It's the NFL, but the Andy Reid factor in that room, what was the first moment you were like, this is ridiculous? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was ridiculous. My first mini camp, they get their NFC championship rings, which was like the most gorgeous ring you've ever seen. Packers logo, all in diamonds. And literally, you know, they had just lost the Super Bowl to the Broncos. And literally, these guys would like open it up and be like, put it down. Like, ugh, that disgusts me. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is like amazing. And it wasn't until I got my own NFC championship ring from losing a Super Bowl that, you know, I probably gave off that same vibe because for some unknown reason, instead of it feeling like it's celebrating the journey of, hey, you were the best team in the entire NFC that year, you know, you guys had whatever it was, seven Pro Bowlers, you feel like, hmm, we lost that Super Bowl game. 
And so that was the first moment where I was like, dude, this is weird. But as a quarterback on the field, I remember my first play, it was two jet X dagger, Y shallow cross fake 40 at a double wing, right. And I dropped back and I throw this pass and I'm so excited. Seven step drop, quick flash fake. I throw the ball and I'm like, Oh dang it. I overthrow this thing so much. Like, high heater, you know, just way high. The receiver comes out of his break, catches it, no problem. <laughs> like, didn't change his gait, hit him in stride, caught it. And everyone's like, whoa, who's this guy? Six round pick, but whoa, that was impressive. I promise you, I overthrew this guy, but the guys I was playing with all of a sudden were so stinking good. Like the receiver was six foot four, ran a four, four, 40, 215 pounds, just it was almost easier because it was faster. Everyone around me was better. Um, I, I, I was like, wait a sec. I'm, I might have a chance if these guys are that good. What can you tell us about the Andy Reid um, part of this? Where, you know, like a lot of us, again, we'll be like, oh, he's so good. He's so innovative. He's done all these things. I'm just glad he got one at least last year, too, because I, I didn't. I don't like when somebody's considered one of the best in their field and they're like, yeah, he sucks with the clock and all these Philly things. And it's like, wait, is he great or is he terrible? Like, I can't figure out what you're trying to say because there's Eagles fans for years that are like, all right, enough of this guy. And you're like, wait, did you just get rid of one who of the... Who said that? Who said that? <laughs> Eagles fans. <laughs> but it would have been the same thing. Look, it would have been the same thing with Pats fans if you had gotten to all these NFC champ or on the other side, yeah. AFC championship games and never gotten through. We know the fan bases that would be like that, but... Help me understand the Andy part that separates him from the guys at his level. Yeah, it's funny that people think that about him because when I think of Andy Reid, the first thing I think of is, um, well, this was Brett Favre's quarterback coach when he won his uh, Super Bowl against the Patriots in New Orleans. And then when he played the Broncos tough in the next Super Bowl when John Elway won it. So like, I'm thinking like he has a Super Bowl ring, you know, and he was a huge part of it. I know he was the quarterback's coach, but I remember when he got hired as the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. He had never been a coordinator. So every time I see these like coaching hires in the NFL, everyone's like, well, how long has he been calling plays? Was he the offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator? Bruce Arian said it well. He was kind of pumping up some of his um, some of his coaches that should be considered for head coaching opportunities. And I completely agree with him. And he was talking about his assistant head coach, who's never been a play caller, or I should say, isn't a play caller now. And Bruce Arians was saying, it's because people are looking at the wrong things. You need to look for like a leader of men. Who's going to be the head coach just because you're a coordinator. It's almost like if you're a great teacher, it doesn't mean you're going to be a great principal or a great guidance counselor. And so sometimes you get promoted because you're really good at say sales, but you're a terrible manager. And so I think that's sometimes what happens with these like coordinators that become head coaches. So getting back to Andy Reed, Andy Reed was the tight ends coach in green Bay. Okay. And then after a couple of years of that, he was the quarterback's coach in green Bay. And then before you know it, he's the head coach. And then eventually the head coach and essentially like head coach and GM in Philly and never was a coordinator. So, uh, I, am I surprised that, that he's had so much success as a head coach? Not at all. But when he got hired, so here's what happened in, in Green Bay at the time. Mike Colmgren went to Seattle and took a bunch of people with him. Andy Reid split and went to Philly, tried to offer the job to everyone like in Green Bay. Hey, anybody want to come with me? No, everyone went with Mike Colmgren because at the time there was like this storyline like, well, Andy Reid, head coach, like he's never even been an offensive coordinator. How's he going to be a head coach? And um, 
you know, so like I've always thought he was a great coach. Didn't really care so much about the titles or how many, how many Super Bowl rings pe- people said that he had. Because to me, uh, I watched how he coached Brett Favre. I saw how he felt, how he coached me. Um, he just was incredible. You just knew right away, like this guy has been training his whole coaching career for the day that he gets the chance to be the head coach. And he'll do really well. Like you just knew he would. When you're in that room, and, and I'm only going to understand this, you know, in a simple way, but like, okay, you're, you're, you're going up against an opponent here and, and you're getting ready. And you can even use, you know, something with Andy or maybe even prepping with Holmgren for that Steelers Super Bowl. But where you're like, hey, look, you know, um, in their cover two, this is something they'll do here and this is going to beat this all the time. Like, is that an eye-opening thing for even you as a quarterback a few years in when a coach can actually explain, like, this is what you're going to look for. We've taken a look. We're going to show you the tape. Now let's roll it and all this stuff, and here's what you're going to attack. And then then what actually happens on Sunday, like, what is that whole process like? Yeah, I remember we were playing uh, Tampa. They had this incredible defense, Hardy Nickerson, Derek Brooks, John Lynch, you know, Warren Sapp, all these guys. And they were so good at Tampa 2. And we designed a play to beat Tampa 2. And I remember being in the room being like saying to Andy in my head, not out loud, but in my head, like, hmm, I don't think it's going to work. Like, I don't think <laughs> what it's going to work. It? What was what was the concept? What were you guys doing? Uh, basically, it was like taking the number two and number three receiver and switching them and just trying to get Hardy Nickerson to flatten his feet a little bit. Like, it just wasn't going to work. Like, I, I was sure of it. They drew it up. It's in my book. I'm like, well, that's not going to work. It's going to take too long. All this stuff. And I don't know how Andy knew, like, I had like body language, maybe I was kind of like, you know, I highlight every play I had, like they get to that play and I don't even touch it. I'm like, I take my Sharpie and I'm like, or my highlighter. And I'm like, nah, that play is not going to make it to game day. Like that'll be out by Thursday or Friday or, you know, and, uh, he says to me, like, you think this play is going to work? And I was like, ah, you know, I, uh, probably not, you know? And I forget what he said. He might've said like, I'll bet you a Coke or something like that. Or maybe he didn't. Some, something along those lines. Sure enough, we run this stinking play. And it just right down the middle of the field, Antonio Freeman, literally right down, untouched, stand-up touchdown. The whole stadium in Lambeau is like, MVP, MVP. Like, this is the mighty Tampa defense. And Andy Reid, like, turns back. At little me practice squad quarterback not even in uniform like kind of like points at me gives me like a little wink like told you i'm just like I-, I know nothing these guys are next level i know nothing as you started to tell that one i forgot that we were back to practice squad matt so i'm like wait you're you're sitting there in the room going yeah man i don't know i don't know man i mean that's the northeast in you i love it no, that's it. And listen, I had those, I had those same experiences with Mike Holmgren. Like we, we had this one play that Mike Holmgren was absolutely 100% positive. Sure. Like this is going to be a touchdown. And I'm sitting there like, I don't know, how's this play any different than like, I don't see how it's different. And, you know, he basically stopped the meeting and it was just like, you just need to trust me. You just need to trust me. Do it my way. If it works, it'll work. If it doesn't work, it's not your fault. It's my fault. And sure enough, like it became one of our like go-to red zone plays. It was called 50 UCM fake 40. And it was just like, um, like the, the, the receivers covered, but the DBs just kind of like chilling, relaxing, like, oh, there's no way they're going to throw it. And you throw it and the court, the, the receiver catches it and like became one of our go-to red zone plays. So, you know, I just think like there's, there's something about, Obviously, quarterbacks, you always want your input, but there's really something about being coachable 
and taking a kind of a beginner's mindset and saying, hey, you know what? I respect the years and years and years of wisdom and experience and the time on task studying film that these coaches put in. And it really is a partnership and you got to trust each other. What was your week like for you then? Because, you know, you're almost this... You know how like famous people that become famous a lot later in life, they're, they're almost more grounded. You know, it's the John Hamm theory where, you know, he didn't blow up until later on. So when people know him, they're like, he's normal and, he, and he's great. You know, you're a sixth rounder and now you've had your own team. You've got the relationship there with Holmgren. So what was that prep like for you knowing that that wasn't something that was necessarily supposed to happen in your career? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that I learned right away in my rookie year is that Brett Favre, even though he was coming off of his second consecutive Super Bowl and third MVP in a row, he was blue collar, hard worker. You know, when I would come in, I would come in early. He was already in the squat rack lifting with chains on the bars and all this stuff with the strength coach. Um, he was a grinder. Like He worked. He worked hard. It wasn't about like... There's nothing Hollywood about his approach. And really that was the whole quarterback room. And uh, it was like that in my entire time in Green Bay. So that just was what was normal to me. So normal to me was get to work. You know, it's not about, you know, you know, we didn't have social media then, but I giggle with like all these uh, players now that every workouts on social media and all this kind of stuff, it's almost like, like, does the workout count if you don't post about it? You know, like, it's kind of like, it's just sort of funny because I think to the guys that I really looked up to, um, Favre obviously being the first guy, you know, it wasn't about that necessarily. But, um, you know, to answer your question, it just was like, it just was work. You're just going to work. And how do you work? You know, you just take notes and you study film and, and you just do everything right. We had a saying in Seattle and it carried through true. And I think it helped me in my Super Bowl, even preparation instead of like getting too caught up in like how big the moment is or how big the game is or anything like that. My, my thing I would write in my notes a lot, a lot of the time was just do everything right. And the score will take care of itself. And, you know, essentially sometimes the score doesn't take care of itself. Like essentially like sometimes the scoreboard, you run out of time or you lose the game. But like, if you do everything in your power, you do everything that you can do, what you can control going into the game preparation, um, practice, all those types of things, then win, lose, or draw, you look in the mirror at the end of the game, the next day or whatever, and you're like, I did everything that I could. And so, you know, that's my thing. You know, that has been my thing. Just um, just do everything right, and the score will take care of itself. I believe it's a Bill Walsh quote. I was told it's a Bill Walsh quote. So uh, whether it was or not, um, that's who I give the credit to. I've always liked the Walsh quotes better than the Parcells quotes. Because well, those, Parcells, are two, those are two contrasting, like that yeah. was the East Coast, West Coast. Funny thing about those guys, sorry to cut you off, but like the whole West Coast offense thing, that's never anything that you would ever hear Bill Walsh, Mike Holmgren, Andy Reid. None of those guys will ever use that term. That term was a derogatory term that Bill Parcells used in a press conference after the Giants beat the 49ers. I think my dad was even on that Giants team. Maybe, maybe not. But they beat the 49ers. And he comes into the press conference and he says, how do you like that West Coast offense? And really, that's, you know, I think where that phrase really became so popular. Bill doesn't own, he has the, the you are what your record says you are, which I always am like, yeah, the Bears are five and one. And none of us thought that was real. So uh, there's yeah. examples for it and against it. The quarterback, if you take the wrong one, it sets the franchise back 10 years. That's 100% not true. And especially now. Um, I don't think he said that he, I don't, whoever said the, well, when you passed three things can happen and two of them are bad. 
and you're like, okay, but when you run, you could also fumble and not gain any yards too. Like that's yeah. stupid. And like people have repeated that. Like, oh man, that's pretty clever. No one says it anymore. No, but like I don't golf know. Cliches, you know, yeah. like things that say, you know, oh, you must be living right. Like that, that has nothing to do with me making the putt. I'm sorry. Like, you know, or, or the getting a good bounce on the golf course. You know, like there's one that defensive coaches say sometimes to offensive coaches, and you're on the sideline, you hear it, you just roll your eyes. The defensive coach will say to the offensive coach, Hey, what's your worst run? You know, like what's the worst run on your call sheet there? And the coach will be like, oh, you know, this play. And he'll be like, good, call that because it's better than your best pass. <laughs> it's just like, you know, like, no, it's not true. But, you know. It never was, by the message. way. He's right, trying to right. send a message like, hey, run the ball, you know. No, I'm glad you brought up the golf thing because like, do you golf much? We're like, no. And we're like, oh, why? I'm like, the sayings. The sayings are starting to get to me. Just guys, <laughs> just random guys. You'd be like, oh, hey, what's going on? And be like, all right, I've got like 18 of these prepped. Be like, oh, you know. All right. Uh, two different things then. Do you have a read on this game? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, Can you but, share I, but, but you never know. It's NFL football. I think that's what's so cool about it is that these teams know the weaknesses also. These teams know what should happen based on what's happened in the past. And, you know, they take advantage. A good example of that would be the Raiders versus the Chiefs game early in the year this year. Chiefs were like, oh, Derek Carr's not throwing the ball downfield. He's just throwing it short. Like, if they're going to beat us, we're going to make Derek Carr beat us over the top. Uh, guess what? He did. <laughs> you know, like, he answered the bell. Like, oh, really? You want me to throw it over the top? Okay, I will. And then they also went into that game saying, hey, nobody's better against the Blitz than Patrick Mahomes. Like, nobody. So guess what? We're going to rush four or three. We're never going to rush five or more. Never. And what happened in that game? He turned the ball over a couple times. You know, so like... That's the cool thing about the NFL is that these coaches really are so important. These coaching staffs, they can come into a game with a game plan and you don't really know what the game plan is till you get in the game. And that's why so many great upsets can happen. Do you think if it weren't for Brady and the New England roots that your family would be a bigger deal historically? <laughs> I mean, no, listen, nothing is a big deal here in Boston besides world championships, you know, and it wasn't that way when I was growing up, like when I was growing up, it was the Celtics, obviously were winning finals. Uh, you know, the Bruins were really good, but like, it was 1918, like 1918 and 1986 were like the Red Sox, like years that as a kid in Boston, you heard over and over and over and over again. And then really the Patriots weren't, weren't a great team. You know, they were a good team. We had squished the fish. We had buried the bears. And then that Super Bowl against the bears in 85 was like, yeah, we're, we're not up there yet. And that has all changed since 2001, obviously. So this is a uh, really incredible, the dynasty that the Patriots have here. Hey, this is a lot of fun and uh, enjoy Tampa. I know it's not going to be normal, but it'd be great to see you guys again. Make sure you check out ESPN's countdown show with Matt and everybody else. So thanks again for the time. Yeah, Ryan, always good to be with you, man. Okay, thanks again to Matt Hasselbeck. Coming up here shortly, we're going to have Jeff Passan talking a little baseball. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy, probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute 
to get done. They set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time. Said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand. It's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's French fries changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. Jeff Pass and ESPN joins us, senior baseball writer. I used to love the hot stove league. Um, it has cooled off a bit the last couple of years. So let's update that. And then, of course, we'll end this with an incredible story that you've told. And that's up on ESPN.com as well. All right. I think the Arenado piece of this is at least the headliner because we know he signs a big deal with Colorado. Eight years, $260 million, And now they're already ready to move off of it and eat about $50 million to send him to St. Louis. So this is not new but this one is is staggering for a bunch of different levels. So how do you see this deal and what it means for the economics of baseball? Ryan, this is an NBA deal coming to Major League Baseball. This is a player who is unhappy forcing his way out. And, uh, you know, I suppose in that regard, it's something of an NFL deal, too. Uh, you we're seeing it with Deshaun Watson playing out right now and how the leverage was in the Colorado Rockies' hands. They could have said, you know what? You signed here. You took the money. You're not going to tell us what to do. Either be happy or leave. But they did not want to run the risk that he was going to poison the clubhouse. That was just something that they were unwilling to do. And and furthermore, they didn't want to run the risk that the situation was going to be similar to the John Carlos Stanton one a few years ago when the Marlins decided to trade him. If you recall, the Marlins tried to trade Stanton to the Giants. He used his no trade clause and rejected it. They tried to trade Stanton to the Cardinals. He used his no trade clause and rejected it. So all of this time, all of this capital they had put into dealing Stanton, uh, you know, if the player's not going to accept it, then it's just wasteful. And I think that's the tack that the Rockies took here with Nolan Arenado. We could try to trade him to another organization, but if he wants to be in St. Louis, that's going to be the path of least resistance. And yet taking the path of least resistance also got them uh, the return of least consequence. Because if you ask anyone in baseball, it's like Nolan Arenado for these guys? Really? And and what that says about the game, you saw it with the Lindor trade. You saw it with Stanton being traded for next to nothing. Superstars in baseball do not fetch the packages that they have in other sports. And Mookie Betts was almost anomalous in getting Alex Verdugo and Jeter Downs back to the Red Sox. You know, that deal got panned at the time. But compared to other superstars, uh, they actually did pretty well, I think. Yeah, the Arenado part of this that 
Like how many years into this deal was he? Two years in? Two years, yeah. And so with, I'm looking at what another, well, St. Louis tacked on an extra year here for 15 million, which actually kind of seems insane considering he still had six years to go. Um, this isn't even an NBA deal. Like an NBA player hasn't had the balls to go. I'm pretty unhappy. I got six years left. Now, granted, there's no six year deals <laughs> in the NBA anymore. This part has not gotten enough attention because, you know, a lot of the NBA stuff that, that we've talked about over the last couple of years is that I can be on the player's side. I would never root against them in a CBA negotiation, but it doesn't mean that I have to back every single player decision, which is, I think, what too many people are doing. Mm -hmm. And if you have like two plus years left on your deal and you've done in the team, like the Harden deal is, is a really good example of it. Like I'm supposed to be on your side as you mail it in and put zero into the team here in Houston. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to hope you get what you want. So who was rooting for Aaron Otto to be happy with six years remaining on an eight-year extension he had just signed? I think the people rooting for him are the ones who have seen the Colorado Rockies systematically screw up just about everything they've done. Like, this is a bad organization. And Mark Carrig wrote something on The Athletic just absolutely lighting him on fire for it. And I, I would recommend you go take a look at that because I thought it was pretty spot on in its analysis. Um, you know, right. When, because I mean, we're looking at a farm system. That's a disaster. We're looking at, yeah. you know, the overall, if you look at just, I was looking at some of their stuff last night, they project to be like one of the three worst teams in baseball. Anyway, I think it was even with him in some of the projections. So, yeah, I mean the, the issue with the Rockies has been just the, the complete abject disaster that they've been in free agency. If you go look at some of the free agent contracts that they've signed, uh, whether it's Ian Desmond for uh, you know eighty million dollars, or that off season where they spent more than a hundred million dollars on Wade Davis, Jake McGee, and Brian Shaw, three relief pitchers in Colorado who actually combined for negative WAR, I believe, in their time there, meaning they spent a hundred million dollars and uh, actually weren't even replacement level. So the, the personnel decisions there have, have been catastrophically bad. And when Arenado signed that extension, he did so with a promise from Dick Mopfert, the owner, we are going to build around you and we are going to be aggressive and make this team better. Then they didn't. And it, and it was almost immediately that they didn't, which started the souring of this relationship feeling like the other side was being duplicitous. Um, it, and I suppose duplicity can be part of the process if you have $260 million. But the fact that he, he felt like he did uh, was not going away. And there was nothing that was going to salvage that. So Lindor, um, we could talk about Mookie. I mean, look, Arenado, somebody, eight gold gloves. He, I think, is third in war behind Trout and Mookie as, as a mm -hmm. position player here um, since we go back to the beginning of his run. But, you know, Blake Snell with Tampa, I guess you could just say, hey, that's Tampa specific. The Pirates and some of the stuff they've done now for two plus years. What is going on in this league where it feels like half the teams don't? Is it expanded? Is it is it fear? Or are they using, you know, we always have that rule. Like if you give somebody an excuse, they're going to use it. And if you give owners the excuse of, hey, we're not sure what the finances are going to be for good reason because of everything that's going on here, it's going to impact at least two seasons with baseball and the pandemic. Um, it. it it's, is there any argument to understand this other than it just feels like baseball has a lot of partners that don't care about the product? 
I think that there is a fundamental question about competitiveness in baseball that has been leaking into the game, you know, since the Houston Astros did the the original tank job there and and the Chicago Cubs followed with it and other teams have taken that same tack. And and I looked uh I looked last week, I think that there were something like 10 teams right now that have sub $80 million payrolls in Major League Baseball, which is a, a ridiculous figure considering we haven't seen that in 10 years. And the revenue growth uh, over the industry in that time has gone from $6.5 billion to $10.5 billion annually. I mean, we're talking like more than 50% growth, and yet teams are sporting payrolls like it's back in the you know the 2000s or, or the very early 2010s, and and so the the consequence of that is that players are pissed that labor animus is as high as it's been since 1994, and that we are barreling our way toward a lockout where the main point of contention from the Players Association is going to be that Major League Baseball has turned into a fundamentally anti-competitive outlet and that that is a problem for the product, that that's a problem uh, for the sport, and that there need to be new levers put into place to ensure that teams go out and not only spend, but try to win. Yeah, it always gets back to like some of that fan graph stuff I would look at where the percentage of actual revenue being paid to players was declining, declining, declining. Yeah. And I know I brought it up with you, so I'm repeating myself, but we had Manford on set in San Diego All-Star Weekend. And I was like, hey, what's going on with that? And you would have thought I asked them to play with two baseballs, you know? He was like, what? And then like one of his guys apparently was like motherfucking me to somebody at ESPN being like, why would he ask that? Why? I was like, I asked it because it's true. Right. It's because the players know it's happening. And so like, and I actually, again, I'm not some massive anti-Manford guy, believe it or not, which I, I know is rare these days because I think some of this stuff is impossible, close to impossible to navigate through. Uh, I'm not saying he's without mistakes, but this is, this is coming to a head. Like when you have the Red Sox who are like, if I got to read another Garrett Richards spin rate article, um, <laughs> you know, 10 million for him, 14 million for Kiki Hernandez after yeah. you just get rid of Mookie and you're the Red Sox. And so, you know, again, I still think the tanking part of baseball is a little overrated because you just don't have the same kind of impactful guy where you go, hey, we just grabbed a LeBron, you know, or we just grabbed, hell, even a Joel Embiid, and now this is who we're going to be. I don't think it's the same relationship at all. Yeah. Um, but you want to jump in, so go ahead. No, I, I think the Red Sox are actually a very interesting team to look at right now because a, a lot of a lot of the issues, I think, stem from – the principles that have been espoused. Oh my God, that's an enormous water bottle. I'm sorry. I had to. No, thank you. My goodness. I saw that. It looked like a giant can of like special monster energy. Like what would be the bang energy over here? What would be the, yeah. What would be the Rosillo monster energy flavor? <laughs> Anger. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't, so, I don't know. So, so the Red Sox, let's go back and look at what the Tampa Bay Rays did uh, when Andrew Friedman was there. Uh, they signed two types of deals. They signed their own players to long-term under-market contracts, and they signed free agents, not, not normally high-profile, but you remember Rafael Soriano. Uh, they would sign free agents to one-year deals. And, and 
that's worked really, really well for them. And you saw Friedman take that model to Los Angeles and replicate it only with a jolt of Rosillo energy drink. And they got a ring out of it. You know, they got a ring. And look at who's running the Boston Red Sox now. Tyam Bloom. He learned under Andrew Friedman, and those very same principles are being applied there right now. And I think that Mookie Betts was the consequence of Dave Dombrowski chasing a ring. Um, I'm not absolving the Red Sox for doing what they did here, but if you are going to bring Haim Bloom in, and if you're going to commit to this vision of trying to do what the Rays have done and try to do what the Dodgers have done, then you almost need to restart. And and I think that's what they have been trying to do to to get as close to a restart as you can. Now, was trading Mookie Betts the the right thing to do? No, of of course not. Even though I think Verdugo's good, even though I think Downs is going to be good, um, it, it's a trade that if your ownership, you cannot allow them to make. But uh, I, I think that in the end, the Red Sox, the, these little deals that you see here are going to make them better and they're going to be back sooner than people think. Yeah. And it always is worth bringing up because I, I always felt like Lou Merloni, who's on the air in Boston, who was um, one of my favorite all-time Red Sox, and I'm not being sarcastic. Uh, he's always been really good on the Mookie thing. Like he had the contract, he had uh-huh. the trade, and he's always said, look, he didn't want to stay here. He didn't want to stay here. He didn't want to stay here. So if that's 100% true, and I would I would tend to believe he's been so good on that stuff. Um, and, you know, like I also think there's a devil's advocate part of this because, you know, I was going through the free agent signings, and I think we have three deals that are guaranteed north of $50 million in in one off season. Now, you can understand. I, I think there might be one. There could be a fourth one there, but that, that's basically what we're talking about. There's like 100 and then there's a 90, and then there's a 60, and then I think there's a $54 million total package, and I don't know what the guarantees are on that. There's, so there's a, the, the Springer's 150, Rio Muto 115.5, uh, LeMahieu 90, and after that, I think James McCann might James be McCann the next is highest. It, is it 60? James, or? James, no, James McCann is at 40.6. Okay, there's a 54 in there for uh, for somebody. Oh, Liam Hendricks, of course, yeah, is 54. Yep. Okay, yep. all right. So that on its surface, I'm like, whoa, when I looked that up and all the other stuff that we're talking about. And yes, this stuff is always really interesting to me, but we also know the pandemic part of it, the excuse we've already mentioned that. But then there's another part where I have to kind of say, all right, what if I'm on the other side? I'd be like, hey, weren't all of you idiots ripping us for almost two decades talking about how terrible long-term <laughs> position contracts have been? I mean, if you go all the way back to Todd Helton, to Prince Fielder, to even Miguel Cabrera, you could, you know, like, look, I could go through more of these, but it was almost like a 90% miss rate. So I'm wondering if it isn't just, look, part of it is not spending, part of it is the competitive stuff. I don't like any of that. I would never defend any of that part of it, but I can't also be critical of how bad they've been on positional contracts and they get mad because they're not giving out positional contracts again. The entire system needs an overhaul. I mean, that that's just like what do you think should happen then? Give give me your whole mission statement if you were in charge of this. I think free agencies should start earlier. Um, because if you're going to be giving out long-term contracts, it is better to do it to young players. Um, I think there needs to be something in place that uh either 
greatly compensates teams that lose high level free agents uh, or uh, gives them leverage or leeway to sign. I think there uh, needs to be significantly higher pay for younger players because uh, that higher pay uh, will compensate them for their best years. You know, I, I look at the years that guys who are making $500,000 when they're producing $100 million in value. Uh, that, that may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but if you got a five... No, right. no, no, if get, got, no, if you got, if you got a five-win player, he's worth $50 bucks or so marginally, especially if he's on, you know, when, when Chris Bryant's winning the MVP in his second season. Uh, when Juan Soto, uh, and, and I say this not exaggerating, Juan Soto is Ted Williams, man. He is that good and he's being paid near the minimum this year i don't i don't think that should be the case i think there should be levers in place where guys get compensated uh based on their production in those early years and that just is not there right now um and and you can there there are a million different things that you can do to uh disincentivize losing uh to reward winning i i don't i actually don't mind the idea of winning teams getting better draft positions than they do right now or there being a losing penalty where if you lose 90 games three consecutive seasons i don't know you lose a first round pick your first round pick moves down 15 spots um it's just everything needs to be in place with the idea that we want to promote major league baseball as a place where teams are trying to win. You just have to come to terms, Ryan, with the fact that the numbers say when guys hit 30 years old, they tend to go downhill. If you're fighting against that, then you are fighting a losing battle. That is not a hill that you can die on. And that's the existential crisis of the Major League Baseball Players Association, that most free agents are 30 years old. And most people who do reach free agency are looking for paydays when teams right now know that those contracts are like the ones you said, they're just not going to be great by and large. I used to push back on the, the money for the guys with like a year in, you know, but you're right. I mean, the low scale of what they make is so yeah. absurd yeah. that there can be some kind of, I don't know if it's a rookie scale similar to the NBA, but I mean, even the NBA, which had to overhaul its entire thing. And then every time they knew, do knew a CBA, they'll, they'll reset the rookie scale. You know, they don't want it to keep growing off of some number that was mm -hmm. set 20 years ago, so they'll reset it. And if you come out that year, it sucks. But it's still like Anthony Edwards, number one pick, he's going to make close to $10 million. He'll make 44 guaranteed the first four years. Wiseman's at eight. I mean, it does drop off significantly. You go to the seventh pick, he's going to make five guaranteed $24 million. But this is significant money. I mean, even the 15th pick, is going to make about 15, 16 million guaranteed unless the team doesn't pick up his third and fourth year options. So you're right. Like, I don't know if it's like, I'm okay with a team having some control over the guy that they picked and they were right about. As, as you yeah. mentioned before, the, the resources put into talking about a trade that doesn't even happen. Think of the resources of scouting somebody, building that relationship over and over again. You shouldn't just be losing them a year later. And no one's suggesting mm -hmm. that, but there has to be a way to better compensate the early productive players um, and then maybe there's maybe there's some sort of reward and less risk on the backside of that, like you're talking about. Yeah. And I almost look at it like there there's some sort of fixed pool for God. I cannot get over that giant water bottle. You keep going back to it. <laughs> I'm just can thirsty. I, I, this topic. 
Good God. You're like 6'6", too, right? No, no, I'm not 6'6". How how tall are you? I'm 6'2". Yeah. You're 6'2". You have 6'6 presence. (laughs) You have 6'6". Yeah, I'm definitely not 6'6". You have have like 6'6 voice, too. I'm I'm sorry. You need to stop drinking. You got me on tilt now. Okay. Um, Um. I don't know if it's a pool of money that gets distributed to younger players based on their performance. If every team has to kick in a fixed amount. I don't know if it's like, let's just look at it this way. If you are an organization and you have a player who is performing, you want to pay him right? Like you want him to somehow be rewarded for that. And I understand arbitration kind of tries to do that, but that's not until a player's third year at earliest, um, typically fourth, fifth, and sixth years. And it's on such a a sliding scale that Juan Soto, as great as he is, is going to make eight and a half million in his first year of arbitration this year. When if you look at his numbers, uh, he's made a million and a half over his first three years. And you look at his numbers, they are historically good, Ryan, like historically good. And uh, he just, you know, if if you had gone to the Nationals and said, hey, you got to give Soto like five million extra dollars because he carried you to a World Series. I think the Nationals would have been like, no, okay, I'm I'm cool with that. And if if the if the fact that thirty something year old free agents aren't getting paid as much is what allows that to be funded, well, look at where we are right now already. Thirty something free agents really aren't being paid a whole lot now, so the system doesn't have to change much in order to make it that way. Uh, yeah, I wish I wish I could uh, I wish we could have solved this today, but I'm not sure that we're going to get there. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, let's, you know, let's, let's solve the last 25 years of major league baseball, chipping away at the will of the players association and subverting the the bargaining dynamic that for so long existed in this sport. I wish, listen, like one of my goals has been to write the new CBA and I just have never gotten around to it, but I want to, I want to take a crack at what a functional basic agreement in baseball would look like. I think it's a great piece to just you know, put it in the back of your head, pull out that folder every now and then don't give yourself a deadline on it. And if you did like a 10 part thing, and then you could ask agents and front office people and players, like just add it all together. And then you become the, the person that's in charge of the final proposal and put it on (laughs) com. that, that would be unbelievable. All right. There's two things I got to get to here and I don't want to rush one, but this part of it, at least the latest on what the new proposal is, we know the latest was rejected by the Players Association. We went through this last year. Where are we at with yeah. it? Uh, spring training report date is February 17th, and that's that. I mean, if, if you want the 30,000-foot view, this is two consecutive uh, messes for Major League Baseball. The first when uh, last year after the March agreement, they couldn't agree upon what they had agreed upon uh, and ended up being a 60-game season when there could have been 100 games very easily. Uh, this time, uh, you know, the, the back and forth has been stilted and major league baseball wanted to push back the season. And the players said, well, don't talk to us until you're willing to give us full pay. And MLB finally went back to them two weeks before spring training start and says, uh, we'll do full pay. And the players said, uh, no, thank you. We're going to report to spring training. And, uh, that's that. And I, I think any reasonable person 
would say that if you move things back and try to wait out the pandemic, uh, it's not a bad thing. But the players, uh, I, I think the players look at it like MLB wants something. They need to give us something to get it. And not only were they not willing to give us something to get it, they tried to take something from us in the form of the expanded playoffs. So that the the strategy from MLB from the start there was uh, suboptimal and, and was not the kind of thing that was going to put them in line to get a deal done. Okay, there's no way than other just to tell the audience that this is a hard left turn here. Um, but Jeff and I spoke earlier this week. Maybe you've seen his feature up on ESPN.com. Uh, it's a story of Drew Robinson, who's with the Giants organization. And when I talked to Jeff, he's like, this story's going to blow you away. Right out of the first jump, the first paragraph, you're like, okay, you know, sit down and and lock in here. And you've described this as the most important story that you've ever written. So um, why don't you tell us the story? It's, I, I say the most important story that I've ever written because it's not just a sports story. It's not just a baseball story. It is just a life story and about the struggles every single human being goes through. And for Drew Robinson, they were just simply more acute than others. And he, didn't understand how to uh, how to deal with them in a healthy fashion. Uh, you know, he he didn't talk about them with family and friends. Uh, he didn't seek professional help or treatment. He uh, looked at medication as as weakness as opposed to something that's vital. And in the end, uh, on April sixteenth, he shot himself in the head. And the the miraculous part of the story, I think. Uh, on on the top line is that he lived through that. But to me, the great miracle of Drew Robinson is who he is becoming day after day and the effect that he's having on other people's lives. And when we spoke for the first time, he said, I want to help people. And the the the, the most amazing part of this story, I think, has been seeing during the reporting process the people who he has helped, his mom, his dad, his sister, his brother, uh, the the woman who he still loves and who he was engaged to at one point, uh, his coaches, his, um, the, you know, the random people in his life. And Ryan, like this story, when we're recording this, this story's been out for about 24 hours. Um, he's helping a lot of people that he doesn't know already. And like, this is day two. So to know what Drew has ahead of him is exciting and daunting and scary and intimidating. And the fact that he's trying to come back and, and play baseball with one eye, even if that doesn't, work even if that doesn't happen and i will never doubt that man to do anything but if it doesn't i know for a fact that for the rest of his life uh he's going to be an inspiration to people uh just like he's been to me for a while now please check that piece out from jeff um it, it is right away because i didn't know what it was about at all and then you click on it and you're a couple lines in and you go oh 
okay. And the way you take us through the entire thing and then you jump back and forth in the timeline of the event um, of where he actually tries to take his life and then going back and studying his history and then kind of moving forward. It's really, really well done. And, and I'm not surprised you did a great job on it. So thanks, man. Thank you. And if I may, uh, I'm sorry to do this, but there's a, an accompanying documentary on ESPN Plus uh, that is directed by Martin Kotabashian, who is a brilliant filmmaker. And I urge you to go take a look at that. Uh, bring the tissues. Um, it is it is one of those stories that will stick with you for a really long time. Thanks, Jeff. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Hey, we got one I'm really excited about here. Uh, Life advice rr at gmail.com. But let's start with a simple one. Hey, Ryan and Kyle, 37, work for a small company in the Midwest, six employees. I've worked there about uh, a year and a half, and I'm by far the most recent hire. I'm decent at my job. <laughs> Boys afraid. Like, how often are we all telling the truth? So if you're like, eh, I'm decent at my job, does that mean you actually aren't? But you're saying you're decent at your job, so we'll take your word for it. Easy to get along with, good sense of humor, albeit dry, have a good working relationship with everyone in the office. My problem is that I'm a volume joke guy. <laughs> I feel like I hit on about 30% of the jokes I tell around the office. At first, I was fine with a higher usage rate because I was feeling things out and expected my percentage to go up over time. Instead, I feel like the jokes that aren't landing are making it increasingly more difficult to relate to my coworkers, and I feel like they've started distancing from me. I've never been in this position before, and I'm not sure where to go from here. At this point, is it better to drastically cut my joke telling, or should I continue to refine it to get my stats up? Have you ever dealt with a volume joke guy? Any advice is appreciated. Wow. Not long, but a lot going on. So let's start with a couple of the obvious ones. If you're saying you feel like you hit on 30%, but you're noticing that employees are distancing themselves from you, that number is probably like 10%. All right. So if you're the one telling all the jokes and you think they're hitting and you're giving yourself a 30, it's lower, man. It's lower. And if you're self aware enough, I mean, unless you're the most self aware volume joke guy, but I would think if you're the most self aware guy, you wouldn't be a volume joke guy. But now you're sort of both. But then I'm thinking, like, are you partially aware? And you've noticed that people have just distanced themselves from you. You got a real problem here. And on top of that, you're in a Midwest city, L.A., New York, Boston. I'd be really worried about you. But you're hitting only 30% in a Midwest city. It's the same thing when people on the coast will see some of the network lineup shows where I'll go, who laughs at this shit? And you go, oh, 
the Midwest. <laughs> so if they're not laughing at your jokes right now, and by the way, I love people from the Midwest. You know what I'm saying? Um, I just, I just think that there's, uh, oh, we'll just leave it at that. I just, I just think there's certain levels of, of sitcoms over the years where I've gone, what, who's this for? So, um, I'm worried about you big time. I am because this isn't baseball where 30% is hall of fame. This is, this is low. It's really low. I would almost apologize. I would, I would make the joke on you and go, Hey, look, I've been volume joke guy. Just call yourself out. I need to tighten that up. Maybe people will get a kick out of that. Some real, some real humble, not Instagram humble. I don't know. Don't send a memo out or maybe just rehearse some of this stuff a little bit better. You know, do you have anybody you could bounce your material off of? Cause this is, this is bad because the bad joke guy, it sucks because nobody knows what to do. We had a guy and look, I, I don't really like him to begin with, but we had a guy who would come into the studio and he would, no matter what, there was always a joke. It was always a comment. It was always something. And so you'd be sitting there with your staff or you'd be sitting around doing your thing. And then this guy would come in and he'd open it up and he'd be like, oh, is that the shirt you're wearing? And in the beginning, you're like, okay, <laughs> be like, hey, you know, last shirt. And I'll admit too, like I had a weird phase post-college where all I could think of was an insult. As soon as somebody said something, the only thing I could think of was an insult. And finally I had to be like, hey, you're not a, you're not a dick. You're not a bully. Like, why are you doing this? It's like, oh, that's because that's all we did was insult each other for like four years. And then a couple of years after that, like it was just a massive insult fest. So you had to learn how to be quick enough to insult the other guys so that you could just keep up. And then when you sort of kind of move out of that phase where, you know, it wouldn't be fun to just be insulting people all the time or having somebody <laughs> insult you, uh, you're like, hey, stop doing this. But my mind was wired to immediately think of an insult all the time because it was just, again, iron sharpening iron. I just love saying that. I love saying man sharpen man because I saw it at a football facility once and I thought it was like the funniest thing I've ever seen. So um, you have to figure out a way to like self-edit. You have to figure out. So as soon as that joke pops up into your head, you got to go, okay, is this a really good one or not? And I don't know if you're capable of that because you're 37 and you're writing this email. So I'm really worried. Like I'm legit worried about this. Um, and like I said, back to that story, we had this guy, he would come in and in the beginning, you're like, okay, you made a bad joke. You made a dumb observation. That was his sort of odd, like ice breaking way. And then it just became insufferable. Like nobody could do anything with it anymore. So the guy would come in and he would say his, his thing. He'd be like, Oh, you know, and you just be like, <laughs> and then I would stare and I would look and he would be like, okay, Ryan. And I go, okay, are we done? I'm like, all right, now can we start the conversation? Cause that's how I was that sick of it. And at that point, I could kind of just be like, look, you feel this way about me. I feel this way about you. We're not kidding our, each other here. We, we both know we don't like each other. So, all right, cool. And, and it was just unbelievably awkward because everybody was uncomfortable around it all the time. Like people in the office, everybody was like, oh, so-and-so came in and he just would, you know, he makes these jokes and they're never funny. And it's just this weird observation. And I think it's almost like a weird, insecure, hey, I'm being one of the guys thing. So you didn't take it it wasn't like nasty. It wasn't, but it just made everybody awkward. And then everybody starts talking about you. So the pro the problem with this is, is probably everybody is talking about you. So I hope this helps you feel better about your day at work. <laughs> um, no, you there for me, bud? 
Yeah, that's oh, oh. yeah. I'm there. I just kept thinking of the uh, the Seinfeld episode with um, Kramer's girlfriend, who's uh, heckling Jerry. Before she heckles him, she just like makes makes and laughs at her own terrible jokes, and it's not even a joke. It is like observations, like you said. Like she doesn't even come up with one in the chamber. She's just like, oh, I'm so excited, you know, all that stuff. You know what the, what the episode <laughs> yeah, I'm talking she about? Ruins this whole set. <laughs> Jerry gets all mad. God, I haven't watched that show in a while. I'm gonna start. Swing back on it. All right. Okay. Uh, this is a three, two, and one. Okay. This is a big one. This is a big email for us. All right. Let's go here. Ryan moved to LA a year ago to pursue screenwriting. I went to college in an unrelated field, but a script I wrote at a school got some interest by agencies in LA. And since writing was my passion, I figured it was best to make the move to LA. Not a big move, just from San Diego to LA. When I graduated, I moved into an airstream with no power and no water in the valley at a friend's house. This guy's a real, real troubadour over here. Um, Kyle, would you ever want to live in an airstream? No, I can confidently say no. Okay. Absolutely. All not. right. Our guy's just like, he's writing. So he's in the valley. He's like, you'd be surprised how cold it gets in the valley at night. Trust me, I was. I, I wouldn't be at all. Um, there's, they leave that out of the California part of it, but when it does actually get cold at night here. Um, and people want to act like it's Tijuana on the East Coast. You're like, oh, what is it, like 80? Like, no, it's it's like 51. What are you talking about? I know it gets even colder out there. All right, a couple months go by. I take a couple meetings with agents and producers, but then all of a sudden, all the people who wanted to work with me are nowhere to be found. No way. <laughs> welcome, welcome to screenwriting. All right. Around the same time I meet this girl, we hit it off. She's amazing. She's got a nice place down in San Diego where I went to college. So I'm down there writing by the beach all the time. Life's decent. Living situation improved. But the work stuff was hitting a wall. Then COVID hits and our lease runs out. We can't really go back and stay at my trailer. So she says, why don't we go stay at my brother's? Her brother is none other than a world famous musician uh, making eight figures a year. I can't say the name of the musician, but just trying to paint the picture. We lived there for about five months. And by the way, um, I was able to figure out I think who it was, and and this guy is uh, very serious. Like he's not exaggerating. Okay, this is this is very serious. So, our emailer says he lives there for about five minutes with the sister. The whole time I'm writing, living in this sick house, it's great. He's asking me about my work. I'm asking him about his. We're homies. He would always tell me he didn't really know people in the film industry, but that he would always try and help with my scripts. Unlike my dad, who when I told him whose house I was living in, he said I should ask for a job. <laughs> I would never cross that line and ask for something like that. But when he offered help with my scripts, I filed it away. A couple months go by after we live there and I have my own apartment now. I have a new script uh, trending, but again, everyone takes a meeting, then nothing. Again, welcome to screenwriting. Uh, like anyone, after things like this in subjective industry, you start to doubt yourself. Just dead end after dead end. I'm really down on my luck. Um, then one night we go to his house for a small party. At the end of the night, we're all drunk. And he starts telling me about his new short film he's making, how amazing it is because he's making it with real, all caps, writers and how I wouldn't understand because I'm not a real writer. Oof. Keep in mind, this is the guy who said he didn't know any of the writers or people like that. He's borderline blacked out, so I brushed it off. But it hurt. And my girlfriend could tell it hurt. She knew the situation. 
She said he does it to her all the time. She's also unemployed right now and in marketing, but he'll talk about marketing positions on his team all the time in front of her. She says she has so many people to do things for him that he doesn't think about these things. By no means do I feel entitled to his help or anyone's help. I'm a hard worker and I'm willing to put in the time to get where I want to be. I know my place in the pecking order of the industry right now. Hell, I'm 23. I know he still have a lot more of my dues to pay. But going back to what he said, it wasn't the fact that I didn't get the job to work on the short film. I just wanted to sit in the room and get coffee for the writers, do bitch work. I want to work. It's just so fucking defeating to be passed over so many times for people who say they want to help you. And then when it comes, they ghost you, especially in an industry where it's a business in which people have to help you break in. You can't just make a script and then have a movie. So I'm writing to ask, since I know you talk about your grind to get where you are, do you have any advice for someone trying to get in the industry like this or anything for any kind of peace of mind? Um, this is not unique, unfortunately. And I know that, look, I'll get a lot of emails through the, the Kyle machine here. And a lot of you guys are asking me about help. I can't help you. And I know this is not what this email is. Um, it's hard for me, man. I've moved out here a couple of years ago. I've had meetings where I went, oh my God, I'm going to do something with this person. Or this guy just gave me the best feedback ever on my script. And this was the best meeting I've ever had. I had one meeting at a place where it was scheduled for 30 minutes. We were there two and a half hours. We were making plans for that weekend. And we had all these mutual friends. And he was saying, like, I can't, I can't wait to read this or this. And he's like, that's incredible. I've never heard from that guy again. It's been two years. <laughs> okay. Never heard from him again. Um, I've had meetings at every place you would ever want to have. And all of them, except for like one went incredible where you leave and you go back to your car and you're driving back down the coast. You're like, I'm really doing it. I'm really doing it. And you never hear from that person ever again. I think that's what the industry, I think the industry is I've learned is that if you never want to close the door on anyone, so you let them think there's always a possibility so that if ever comes back around and it's like, Oh wow, this person was really interested in me or I always believed in you, or I told you I always liked your script or, you know, I always knew we'd work on something down the road. That's what I've learned about the industry is that that's that's just how it works. It's ridiculous, but that's that's how it goes. And as far as like getting something made, if you're not already a guy, you know, a real person with a big time production deal and a, and a history of stuff. And when you factor in like the movies that are and aren't being made and then some of the, the stuff that you're going to have to pull off to even get a TV show made, it's it's really hard. Now let's go back to your specific situation. Um, so you can't, first of all, you can't feel better. You're 23 and meetings aren't going better. Or people aren't following up. That's not unique to you. So you can't get down on yourself. You can't use that to be bummed out. Like nobody's following up with you. People aren't following up with people all over the place. And you factor in COVID and everything else. And a lot of places don't want to buy something because it's like, wait a minute, I already bought all these other things that I haven't been able to make for a year. And now I'm going to buy more stuff and I don't know when I'm going to be able to make it. So the timing is is actually pretty terrible too. So we got all that out of the way. I can tell you this, um, and I think I say this with a great, as we were talking about self-awareness before, with a great sense of self-awareness. Whatever my level of, of, I don't even want to call it famous, but whatever the level of this is and being on ESPN a bunch of years and having a podcast, like I think I have good perspective of what it's like to be really famous because I'm around the people that are really famous and know that I'm not that, all right? But what I've always noticed about some of the people that are really, really fucking killing it, and whether it's an actor or a musician, is that they've had to be so single-minded to get to this point that they can become incredibly selfish in a way they don't even realize they're being selfish. Like, this feels a little selfish, but this guy, this musician, 
I don't even know that he realizes that he's he's basically bumming you out like this. And it's weird. You're dating his sister. You don't know if you're going to be part of the family. It's been, what, six months or something like that. And I'm with you. Like, I have people that I could probably ask for bigger favors, but I don't really want to. Um, there's a couple of people I've had stuff read that are big deals, and it's great when I get amazing feedback on it. But then I just kind of go like, all right, fine. They read it. They gave me all this great feedback. Maybe it's true. But that's kind of where I'm going to leave it. There's other people that I'll notice where I'm like, oh, I'm getting an eye roll from this guy. Like, this guy doesn't think I'm ever going to get anything done because this is really hard. And I can very sense like this guy has no poker face and he's just going to like doubt me the whole time. And so fuck you. Let's go. Right. Um, I don't even think any of that stuff is happening here. I think what we're talking about here is a musician that is a big deal who is in his own world so much that he doesn't even understand that he's bumming you out. So it's actually, I know this sounds messed up, but his selfishness makes this better because none of it's malicious. Now, when he said real writers, did he say that as like a dig on you or was he just drunk, like getting real creative? Like people will be up late at night being like, no, but then we're going to shoot it with like real people, you know? So I don't know if that's, you took it personally. He, I don't even know that he would have meant that. So it sounds weird to want to give a pass to a guy making eight figures a year, but you have to one, understand that the times where he's selfish and the times it's all about him is that at this point of his life, literally everything is about him. Every time he gets off a plane, every time he shows up to a venue, every time he interacts with anyone, it's always about him. He is now the center of attention forever for as long as he's still successful. And that can that can make you weird in a way that you don't understand how much you're detached from the reality around you. And I think that's all that's really happening here. So I don't think it's nasty, but would it be the worst thing for you to just go, hey, look, or maybe you talk to the sister. I mean, the fact that he doesn't want to put his sister on a marketing gig, I don't know. Some guys are weird about, and it's not nepotism, but the family part of this. I mean, look, I've tried to get my brother a couple gigs here and there. I haven't been able to get him a job. You know, he's 30. He's a great music producer. He's DJed. I mean, he's not just playing other people's music. He's put together great music. I mean, he's the same deal. He has all these meetings. They don't go anywhere. I've tried to find him some jobs, but I don't know how much I want to push it because then I don't want people to think that my brother only got a job because of me. And it certainly wouldn't be an on-air thing or some, something like that. So you could, if the sister says, hey, this is kind of his deal, Again, too, you're living there, so maybe he is a total asshole, and I don't know that, but you didn't say any of that stuff before. It's this one part where, like, did you want him to pick you as an unproven writer to write this? You're already saying no, that you just want to be around it. Like, what's the harm in you just saying, hey, you know what I want to do? We've gotten along. I'm not even asking to write or anything like that. I don't have any credits, but can I just be around it? Because um, that'd be a really weird thing for him to say no to. And if he says no, then you know where you stand. And if he says yes, then guess what? Like things change. And now you're going to start connecting with people that are actually pulling this stuff off and you don't know. So, you know, I don't think you should be this pissed about it, even though I understand why. But you can't just stay pissed without ever asking him, even if you feel like, hey, I shouldn't do this. You're not asking him for a job. All right. And dads can be weird like that. My dad still sometimes like, how come you're, you can't get your brother a job? I can like, I can't just show up and go, hey, make this guy your music producer. He's my brother. Thank you. And subscribe. <laughs> um, it doesn't, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be pushy like that. But there, there is a part of this where I think there's a really soft, you know, intro into the conversation where you could just say, hey, man, you know, like just while I'm around, if you guys are going to do this stuff, I'll go get coffee. I mean, who's going to say no to you? And as a young age, you're not as threatening. So it sounds like you all get along enough other than that blip. 
you know, if you're sitting there saying, I will do all the shit no one else wants to do just to be around it, I don't know that that many people would ever say no to that kind of thing. So I think you kind of need to do that and, um, and ask in a very non, you know, uh, parasitic way. <laughs> yeah. Cause like you're thinking about this all the time, but he's only ever thinking about it when you bring it up, which sounds like it's never. So, right. Yeah. Right. Like, I think it's cool. The emailer here is like, Hey, I don't want to be that guy. Well, that's great. And I think it's something you want to, fo- but for this industry, sometimes you kind of have to be that guy a little bit. Look, I did it a couple times with big time movie producers where I was like, hey, look, I know we have kind of just like a sort of a casual friendly relationship, but hey, you know, would you ever want to read anything? And then one guy was like, holy shit, really? He's like, I didn't know that's what you were doing. I was like, okay, thanks for listening to the podcast. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and I sent it to him and it was unbelievable that a guy like hit me up and was like, holy shit, this is amazing. He's like, I thought you were kind of like just one of those full of shit guys that moved out here and said he was going to write. He's like, you actually did this. I'm like, yeah. And guess what? Then you just sort of wait. So um, uh, none of it, none of it goes according to your plan, you know, because you got to wait on so many other people. And, you know, if you keep grinding, it's almost like a volume joke guy, you know, you don't want to be a volume joke guy, but if you, you have enough lines out there eventually and you just keep keep at it unless your writing completely sucks and you're just terrible at it then maybe you pivot to something else but you know you're 23 um you can't get discouraged about it because your experience is not all that different from people that are a lot older than you trying to do it that'll do it for the podcast this is a fun one today uh make sure you check us out on friday teddy brewski aaron donald uh, as we'll get you ready for the super bowl so we'll keep grinding here ring our spotify please subscribe Brian Russell Podcast.